If you're joining us this morning for the first time, you're joining us at a good time because we're beginning a brand new series in God's Word. We're beginning uh, a walk through the Gospel of Luke, uh, a, a series we've called Getting to Know Jesus. And that's precisely what we want to do is to get to know the Lord Jesus Christ as he reveals himself in his word. And one of the things that you discover the longer you're a Christian and the longer you think about Jesus is the more there is to know about Jesus, the more there is to discover. And so we're praying that God would give us fresh eyes as we look again at a book that many of us have written or read quite a number of times. Let me introduce it this way. A couple weeks ago, I had the privilege of participating in a panel discussion with uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates of, of The Atlantic. Like many of you, I'm challenged by the powerful and penetrating writing of Mr. Coates. I think he captivates so many people uh, because his writing is plain and at times painful. He states things as he sees them. As a writer, he strikes me as someone attempting to be honest. Bald and bare honesty. No, no hats shading the face of the truth. No heavy clothes cloaking the outline of truth. Just the full truth as he sees it. And Coach writes with a, a rare certainty, I think, even, even about religious things. So in his book, Between the World and Me, which many of us has read, Coach tells the story of having a young man in Baltimore where he grew up uh, pull a gun or flash a gun on him. And he's recounting that, that scary scene and that scary situation. And here's what he says. He says, I could not retreat, as did so many, into the church and its mysteries. My parents rejected all dogmas. We spurned the holidays marketed by the people who wanted to be white. We would not stand for their anthems. We would not kneel before their God. And so I had no sense that any just God was on my side. The meek shall inherit the earth meant nothing to me. The meek were battered in West Baltimore, stomped out at Walbrook Junction, bashed up on Park Heights, and raped in the showers of the city jail. My understanding of the universe was physical, and its moral arc bent toward chaos, then concluded in a box. Later in the book, Coates writes this, you know that the book is, is kind of, he's using the rhetorical device of, of writing a letter as if to his son. And he writes this, instructing his son, he says, you must resist the common urge toward the comforting narrative of divine law, toward fairy tales that imply some irrepressible justice. See, the claims of faith, not only were not a comfort to Coates, but there he's resisting those claims. You must resist these claims. Then he continues later in the book, after reflecting on a tragic situation where his best friend in college had been killed by the police. He talks about being raised conscious in rejection of a Christian God. One wonders why particularly a Christian God. I could see no higher purpose in Prince's death as his friend. I believed, and still do, that our bodies are ourselves, that my soul is the voltage conducted through neurons and nerves, and that my spirit is my flesh. Now, what strikes me about Coates' writing on religious matters isn't his atheism. 
There's a season in life where I too was an atheist and waffled between atheism and agnosticism. I, I think I understand the grip of unbelief a little bit. What's surprising to me is his certainty. He's certain that his view of the world is right. He's certain in his unbelief. And, and ironically, while rejecting Christian faith, he can't help but make faith claims himself. He uses the language of belief. He writes, I believe and still do. Here's the truth, beloved. We cannot live without belief of some sort. We may believe in God or we may believe as coats in our bodies in a material universe that has no meaning, but in either case, we are believers. There are no unbelievers in the world, just people who believe different things. In such a world, certainty is a rare and precious gift. But we can be certain about things that are wrong and false. The best kind of certainty sits on the shoulders of capital T truth. The only things worth believing are the things that are in fact true. So the question this morning is, can we be sure that what we believe is true? Are you sure that what you believe is true? Again, a belief isn't worth having if you can't be certain that what it teaches is true. I want to suggest to you that Christianity alone is the only certain and therefore trustworthy faith. We want a certain faith. That's why we're all starting this new series in Luke's Gospel. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Father, the world is a mixed cocktail of various beliefs. Shaken and stirred, poured over the rocks of life, intoxicating people who are unawares, drinking in all they hear. Oh God, in such a world, give us discernment. In such a world, help us to divide, oh Lord, rightly, truth from error, light from darkness, good from evil, wrong from right. Help us to see it clearly and help us to take our stand where you take your stand. Indeed, help us to take our stand with you. Help us to do this humbly and joyfully that we might experience your love and know more of you. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text for this morning is Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. We're going to read those verses, and we want to spend the rest of our time thinking through two questions, two broad questions that are meant to be a kind of overview to the entire book of Luke. The first question is this, why does Luke write his gospel? Why does Luke write his gospel? Second question is, how does Luke order his gospel? How does he arrange it? How does he order his telling of this story? Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. 
Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. If you're new to the Bible, let me introduce this form of writing to you. It's called a gospel. The gospel of Luke is one of four such gospels in the Bible, in the New Testament. And all of the Gospels are basically biographies of the life and the times of the, of the work and the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Three of the Gospels have this thing in common. They're called synoptic Gospels. They are syn, S-Y-N, which means together, and optic, which means to see. They see together the story from a similar vantage point. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic Gospels, which relate a story of Jesus' life and ministry in much the same way. Luke here is writing for us uh, among the synoptics um, really on behalf of someone else. Luke is a close traveling companion of the Apostle Paul, one of the early church leaders who wrote so much of the New Testament. Luke, in, his book, in this first book and the second book we, which he wrote, the book of Acts, has, has written the, the bulk of the New Testament, and, and much of the remainder is written by Paul. It's thought that Luke wrote this gospel and the book of Acts as a legal brief to defend the apostle Paul who had been arrested and is being tried for preaching the gospel. And so Luke sets out to write what he calls here this orderly account, and, and, and we're introduced to really Jesus as we work our way through this, through this book. Notice what his purpose is. See it there in verses 3 and 4? If you're new to the Bible, when I say chapter number, that's the big number on the page. I say verse, that's the small number. So verses 3 and 4, the little numbers there, where Luke writes, It seemed good also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. There's his, that's why he's written this gospel. That Theophilus might have certainty about the things that he's been taught about Jesus. Oh, we don't know much about Theophilus. The, the name literally means lover of God. Luke mentions him again in Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Again, these two volumes are addressed to Theophilus. But it could be a code name for the church. That all those Christians who have come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ can rightly be called Theophilus, lovers of God. And so this book, even if it's written to a person, an individual person um, named Theophilus, is by extension written to all of us who would know and love God. The Lord wants us certain in our understanding of the faith. Well, how does Luke proposed to give such certainty. I mean, aren't we told that if, as a Christian or a religious person, you believe your faith is certainly true? Aren't we told that that's kind of bigoted? Aren't we told that that's narrow-minded and judgmental? Aren't we questioned about how it is we could have so exclusive a, a claim on the truth? You've got to lock a monopoly on the truth? Really? You know, we're made to be bigots in the minds of some, prejudiced in the minds of others. 
And still others believe that faith is just a leap off into nothing, right? It's a, quote, blind leap of faith. How are you going to be certain if that's the nature of faith? Well, that's not the nature of faith. The Christian claim is that the things the Bible teaches about Jesus are true, and they are certain. And we take that position for three reasons, which are hinted at here in these four verses. Number one, we may be certain because Christianity is a biblical faith. It's a biblical faith. That's what Luke means when he says in verse 1, many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. The word accomplished there in the ESV has a sense of being fulfilled, that something that has been sort of prophesied now has actually come to pass. What is Luke referring to? As Pastor Matt introduced Hebrews 6, the promises of God in the Old Testament. In fact, this is a helpful way to understand how the Bible fits together. If you're new to the Bible, recognize that it's divided into two parts. What we commonly call the Old Testament, which is the, the, the religious writings of Judaism, and, and the New Testament, those writings of the early Christian church. Those things fit together as promises made in the Old Testament and promises fulfilled in the New Testament. That's the sense that Luke has when he reaches for that word accomplished or fulfilled. He doesn't just say these are the things that happened among us. As if these are merely current events with no historical rootedness. These things are rooted in the promises of God himself and may have been fulfilled. It's a biblical faith. It's the culmination of all that was promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and to Israel. All that seemed like it might be lost when Israel went into captivity and temples were destroyed. It's the keeping of that longing, the, the consolation of Israel, as Matt mentioned a moment ago, the, 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 the promised Messiah of God who would bring the kingdom of God. This is why Luke uses fulfillment language. So if Christianity is certain, we would expect that what we find later in the book actually fulfills what's promised earlier in the book. And that's precisely what we have in the Bible. It is a biblical faith. Now, you might say, wait a second, wait a second. You can't say Christianity is true because the Bible says so. You know, that's, that's circular reasoning, isn't it? Well, if that's all we had to say, you'd be right. That would be kind of weak. That would be a slim basis for saying this is true. But not only is Christianity a biblical faith, we may be certain because Christianity is also, number two, a historical faith. That's the implication of verse two. That's what Luke writes there. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. Don't miss what Luke is saying. He's saying, listen, I'm setting out to write an orderly narrative about what Christ has fulfilled of the promises of God. And I'm not making this up out of the air. There are people who were eyewitnesses to what happened, and they are also the people who have been teaching the church and handing down to the church the very teachings of Christ. He has in here not only all those generally who were eyewitnesses of Christ, but he also has in mind the apostles themselves who from the first day of Jesus' ministry to his crucifixion and resurrection traveled with Jesus. 
saw the things that are recorded here and taught those things as they saw them and as they learned them from the Lord Jesus Christ. So when he refers to them as ministers of the word, he's telling us in so many words, this is not hearsay. This is not the fantastic imagination of blinded zealots. These are not things that were done in a corner, done in secret, and, and kind of launched out with, with some clever device. This is the stuff of evidence. This is the stuff that has witnesses. And this is a major difference between Christianity and every other major world religion. So I mentioned before that at one point I was waffling between uh, agnosticism and atheism my mid-twittings. Well, that was after a period of being a practicing Muslim. I feel like I've been around the block religiously. <laughs> and there's so much certainty in Islam that Islam is the final and the seal of all religions, that Muhammad is the final and the greatest of all the prophets. You know what there is very little of in Islam? Historical evidence for its claims. So every Muslim believes in, in, in Muhammad being transported to Jerusalem and, and there being transported up into heaven. And, and that's why they fight for the Dome of the Rock. And that's why they make their claim on the temple in Jerusalem as a, as a sacred place. There's no historical evidence that, that Muhammad ever went to Jerusalem. None. It's the stuff of dreams. It's the stuff of wild claims. Not the stuff of history. And in Christianity, you're getting the stuff of history, things done not in secret, but in the open view of all. And they were done in space and time so that God might leave historical footprints for us to follow. Consider how Luke gives us very historical references in his gospel. Look at Luke chapter 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. Skip down to chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Or look at chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip Tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias Tetrarch of Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. What do these passages have in common? They give us very specific names and locations, don't they? They also give us very specific time references. All of these people and all of these places really do exist. And all these, these claims are, are sort of grounded in time and history. This means we are not left dependent on the Bible's claims to have certainty. We can look outside the Bible to test what's inside the Bible. Again, you can't do that with any other religious book. And you know what? Everywhere that archaeology and history speaks to us about the events of the Bible, they confirm these things. 
So, so there, are, there are stone tablets written, sort of inscribed on the side of official buildings bearing the name of Pilate and, and bearing the name of others. There's historical record outside the Bible of, of Quirinius actually serving as governor two times in Syria. And, and, and there's, there's historical evidence for, for dating the census that, that Luke speaks of here in Luke 3. And all these things are testimonies to the truthfulness of the Scripture. It's as if God not only put his word on paper, he also carved it into sand and stone. He left us, he left us a time castle, capsule in the history of the world itself. We may be certain because Christianity is a biblical, it's a biblical faith, fulfilling all that God promised. We may also be certain because Christianity is a historical faith, leaving evidence for us to follow. Number three, we may be certain because Christianity presents to us a verifiable faith that can be tested. Notice how Luke begins verse 3. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Verse 1 tells us that many had undertaken to write other accounts. We have three other divinely inspired accounts, Matthew, Mark, and John, but Luke may not be limiting his references just to those three, three books. Many is an is a expansive word. And though many, quote-unquote, have tried to or set out to write a narrative, only four have been recognized by the church as Scripture. What is plain from this verse is that from the very start of Christianity, Christ's followers have set his teaching and life to writing. The early church attempted to be a biblically literate church. So it should be today. And they were careful about what they accepted. You may hear of the so-called lost books of the Bible. You hear in little collections like that, reference to something like the Gospel of Thomas, for example. Don't let the claims that those were books taken from the Bible, uh, don't let those kind of claims trouble you. The early church worked prayerfully and faithfully to preserve God's word. And most of what's called the lost books of the Bible are written a century to a century and a half or two centuries after the time of the apostles and the time of Christ. But the early church was thorough. They had, they had at least five questions that you had to answer to determine if a book of the Bible or if a writing would be considered part of the canon, part of the Bible. Here they are, if you're interested. Number one, was the book written by a prophet of God? It's been accepted as coming from a prophet of God. Number two, was the writer authenticated by miracles? Were there miracles to confirm his claim to inspiration? Number three, does the book tell the truth about God? With no falsehood or contradiction from books already accepted. Number four, does the book give divine evidence or evidence of divine power to transform lives? It's a little bit more subjective than the others, but does this book produce in people the spiritual fruit that's consistent with Christ's character? And number five, was the book accepted as God's word by the people to whom it was first delivered? That's a good test. This is why as Protestant Christians, we don't accept um, the Apocrypha. 
the books that occur between the Old Testament and the New Testament that the Roman Catholic Church have placed in their Bibles, Jewish people never accepted that as Scripture. Neither did the early church. And so we don't regard that as, as biblical literature. It may be profitable in some ways, but it's not, it doesn't fit the rules of canonicity. And this is why we reject those books that come much later, like the Gospel of Thomas, never accepted among God's people uh, as his word. And this is why we feel confident in the 66 books of our, of our Bible, the 66 books of the Old Testament and the New Testament as the closed canon of Scripture. And where Luke is concerned in particular, nobody seems to have doubted in, in the history of the church that Luke was the author of this book, that he was a companion of Paul, and that this should be received as Scripture in the church. Not even Marcion. The only reason why you want to remember Marcion's name is two reasons. One, uh, he's the Edward Scissors hand of the early church. He's the guy who's just cutting out things of the Bible he doesn't like. And it turns out he didn't like a lot of the Bible. But even Marcion believed that Luke's gospel was an authentic gospel and should be received as scripture. Here's the other reason. You just don't want to name your children Marcion. <laughs> we stand on this scripture. And what sets Luke apart is Luke's kind of critical and logical analysis. When you read verses 1 to 4, you get the sense that you're, you're looking at the establishment of investigative journalism. He says, I set out to investigate these things. I have followed them closely from the beginning for some time past. He was not an eyewitness, but he apparently interviewed the eyewitnesses. That's why Luke's gospel tells us some things about the early life of Jesus we don't find in any of the, of the gospels. So, example, in Luke chapter 1, we find Mary meeting with uh, Elizabeth. And that whole scene where they meet together and Elizabeth recognizes that Mary is, is carrying the Messiah and even John the Baptist in his mother's womb jumps at the approach of Christ in his mother's womb. Or the Magnificat, those last, that song there at the end of chapter 1 that, that Mary sings after her time together with, with Elizabeth. Unique to Luke's gospel. How does he know this? Except that he probably had access to Mary and to others who, who helped him compile the narrative. So we find in Luke chapter 2 the, the, the sort of little evidence we have of Jesus' boyhood. And where do we find Jesus as a boy, as a 12-year-old boy, in the temple, teaching the truth, astounding the grown folks about how much he knows about the things of God. Luke is doing the work of an investigative journalist, seeking out things, setting it down, ordering it, compiling it, that we might have an infallible record of the Lord's life. So our faith can be tested because it's a historical faith with external evidence. And this is important. It means, beloved, that if you've ever been told that to be a Christian you have to check your mind at the door, I'm here to tell you somebody lied to you. Bring your mind to this book and both your mind and your heart will be satisfied. Uh, to be a Christian is to be a thinking being and to think most deeply about the most profound things, namely the nature of God and the work of God in the universe. Don't check your mind at the door. You ever meet a pastor that gives you that impression? Find yourself another pastor. Find yourself another church. But was it not the Lord himself who tells us in the gospel that, that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our what? Mind and strength and soul. 
bring your brain. You'll be lost without it. <laughs> and open it to the truth of God's word. So don't believe that. And this is important, the, the idea that we can test the scripture, that it's verifiable, that it's provable, because when we talk about Christianity, we're not talking about mythology. We're not talking about stories that are concocted and traditions and superstitions that have been handed down and changed over time. You guys have probably played that game in, in kindergarten or in grade school where the teacher starts with one student, and you're sitting in a circle or something, and she tells a student a, a, a little sentence or two. And they're supposed to repeat it to the next student and on and on and on and around it goes and the last student has to say what the original message was and it looks nothing like what she started out saying. That's not Christianity. That's mythology. That's, le that's legend. It's not biblical Christianity. Let me quote here from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was a, as he'll tell us here, a literary critic and a historian. Taught in Oxford, England one of the literary dons of his time. Here's what he says. All I am in private life is a literary critic and historian. That's my job. And I am prepared to say, he's risking his credentials as a historian and a literary critic, I am prepared to say that on that basis, if anyone thinks the Gospels are either legend or novels, then that person is simply showing his incompetence as a literary critic. I've read a great many novels, and I know a fair amount about the legends that grew up among early people. And I know perfectly well the Gospels are not that kind of stuff. He goes on a little bit elsewhere and he says this. Now as a literary historian, I am perfectly convinced that whatever else the Gospels are, they are not legends. I have read a great deal of legend. I'm quite clear that they are not the same sort of thing. Now he explains. He says they are not artistic enough to be legends. From an imaginative point of view, they are clumsy. They, they don't work up things properly. You see what Lewis is saying? He's saying that you can tell a work of fiction or legend when you read it. Legends have the, the feel and the scent of unreality. But the Gospels are not like that. The Gospels smell musty and sweaty and, and they're gritty and they're dirty because they are actually grounded in reality. They have the sense of ordinariness. There's no, there's no sort of effort you did to sort of leave the world as it is, but it's rooted in the world as it is. It tells the truth about the world as it is because it's not legend and it's not myth. It's truth. And it's meant to be tested, then trusted. And if you're here thinking about the claims of Christianity this morning, let, let me give you a tip. The only religion you have to test only one you can test is Christianity. Test it with all your mind. Test it with all your heart. Ask all of your questions. Go honestly to the answers of your questions. If you find Christianity lacking, walk away from it. And you may safely walk away from all religions in the world. But if you find it compelling, submit yourself to it. Trust it. It will be the only religion you need in the world. And the reason you can walk away from others is because Christianity makes this unique claim among all the world religions. All the other world religions says, this is how you climb your way up to God. Christianity says, this is how God came down to you. It's the only faith where God in his great love and his great mercy wraps himself in our humanity. 
and lives in our place and suffers and dies in our place and rises for our forgiveness and for our right standing with God so that anyone who believes in the Son of God, crucified, buried, and resurrected, is reconciled to God and, and guess what? Joined together with God by faith. And we'll most certainly see God face to face on the day where time is ended and eternity began. No one else promises you that. Not Buddha, not Muhammad, not Zoroastrianism, not anything but Jesus. Test him. Seek him. Look for the truth while it may be found. And the truth will find you and keep you. Here's the question. Do you really want to base your life and risk all of heaven and hell on your own thoughts? How certain are you of what you believe? I'm not asking you how certain do you feel. I'm asking you how certain are your beliefs. You may be feel certain about really uncertain things. How certain are your beliefs in Christianity, in the Gospel of Luke, in Jesus Christ? We want to present to you a biblical, historical, verifiable faith that you can trust. Believe in Christ. Which brings us to our second thing here. How does Luke order his gospel? And here all I want to do is, having looked at his introduction in verses 1 to 4, all I want to do is pick up on that little phrase that he uses there, that he set out to write an orderly account and to use that as a way of giving us an overview of the entire gospel itself. How does Luke organize his book? Well, let me say to you that he organizes it several ways, not strictly chronological, though it is largely chronological. Number one, he organizes it geographically. Geographically. When we come to Luke's gospel in chapters 1 to 9, we're spending almost all of our time in the area called Galilee and around the Sea of Galilee this kind of rural area of towns and villages where Jesus' hometown is found and where his ministry headquarters in, C in Capernaum is located. Uh, he's there um, carrying on life. He grows up there and, and he begins his ministry there, baptized in the Jordan River, and then he goes back to Galilee and he spends those first nine chapters largely teaching and preaching in Galilee. But then something happens in chapter 9 of Luke. The scenery begins to change. Chapters 9 through 19 all have Jesus traveling to Jerusalem. It was the entire journey there. It's his walking step by step from Galilee toward Jerusalem. So look at chapter 9, verse 57. Or, or 51, excuse me. Luke kind of captures the drama here when he says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. In other words, when the days of Jesus' crucifixion were, were drawing close, as one gospel writer says, he fixes his face like flint, like stone, to go to Jerusalem. And so you see in 957, as they were going along the road, chapter 10, verse 38, now as they went on their way, chapter 13, verse 22, he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Chapter 18, verse 31, and taking the 12, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, 
And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets would be accomplished. So you come to chapter 18, verse 35. They draw near to Jericho. And then chapter 19, verse 1. He enters Jericho and was passing through until you come to 1928. When he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And the rest of the gospel happens in Jerusalem. Chapters 19 to 24. Well, that same geography also captures the drama of the narrative. So in chapters 1 and 9 in Galilee, Jesus lives at the height of popularity. The the people seem to love him. He has a a spreading fame and and appreciation. As a boy in the temple in chapter 2, he amazes the religious leaders. John the Baptist announces him as the Messiah in chapter 3. Then Jesus begins his public ministry, reading the scroll of Isaiah in chapter 4. He goes on to, to heal various diseases and to, and to teach the people and to call his first disciples in chapters 5 and 9. And he begins to teach about the kingdom of God. And all of that was received with gladness. Now, when you come to chapter 9 and he sets his face to go to Jerusalem, there's a turn in the entire mood of the gospel. He goes from acceptance and celebration to facing opposition and rejection. So in chapter 11, the people accuse him of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub, by the power of the devil. So Jesus calls them a wicked and perverse generation that looks for a sign. The conflict starts to get pitched. The Lord begins to warn openly against the scribes and the Pharisees. He used to tell his own disciples privately. Now as he's going to Jerusalem, he's saying to all who will hear, beware the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees. They are hypocrites. He also begins to stress that repentance from sin is critical. Look at Luke chapter 13, verses 1 to 5. There Luke records our Lord teaching. There were some at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Pilate, one of the governors of the region, had had killed these Galileans and mixed it with sacrifice and, and defamed their worship. It's a terrible scene. And notice how Jesus answers it. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus seems to interpret all tragedy as a megaphone from God screaming to the world, repent of sin or perish. In our day, we might say the, the crashing of the, of the towers, the twin towers in New York, as tragic as that was for those innocent people going to work that morning, the lesson is, in Jesus' words, unless you repent, you likewise will perish. Or we watch YouTube or watch whatever news clip we see and we see someone else being shot unarmed by police officers. The message isn't just addressed to social justice. The message is, unless you repent, you likewise will perish. That such calamity and travail, such such tragedy and travesty is a message from God that we, all of us, must turn to him, which is what repent means, and turn from our sin 
unless we perish, not necessarily in a tower or a straight bullet or some other act, unless we perish in the wrath of God, the judgment of God against sinners who rebel against him. So as Jesus goes to Jerusalem, he's making this more and more clear. And no wonder he's less and less popular. So you come down to chapters 14 and later, where he begins to tell the religious leaders and Jewish people, unless they follow him, they're not worthy of the kingdom. And in fact, the kingdom is being taken away from Israel and given to the undeserving. Then we come to Jerusalem and things get murderous. He's teaching every day in the temple, the text tells us. But behind closed doors, there are, get this, religious leaders plotting his death. The ones who should have recognized him and told the people this is the one. They pay a man 30 pieces of silver, a friend of Jesus, Judas's to betray him. And he betrays him with a kiss. He's arrested in chapter 22. He's put through a, a sham trial uh, in chapter 23. And he's put to death in chapter 23. But that's not the end of the story. Chapter 24, three days later, he rises from the grave, defeating death and hell and sin and judgment. That's the dramatic order of the gospel. There's also a theological order. And we'll end with this. Chapters 1 to 6 and chapter 10 to 18 present to us Jesus Christ, the prophet. The one who teaches the very word of God, who John chapter 1 tells us is the word of God in the flesh. It presents to us the one who teaches the word of God perfectly. So Luke 13, while we're in that chapter, Luke 13, 13, verses 31 to 34. Notice what we see of Jesus here. He's weeping over Jerusalem and the fact that Jerusalem is so lost and doesn't recognize its Messiah. And we read these words. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox. <laughs> I love Jesus. Go and tell that fox, man. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken. I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I just picture the Lord Jesus' arms stretched out over the entire globe, crying out, not just, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, but O Southeast, Southeast. Oh, Northeast, Northeast. Oh, Anacostia and Fairlawn and Randall Heights and Congress Heights and, and Douglas. Oh, Shipley Terrace, how I stretch my arms out to you and I would receive you, but you're not willing. We say, come to me, come to me, the, the prophet who preaches to you the very word of God. 
In that day, my time had not yet come. Three days later, I would be crucified. But now I'm crucified and glorified and ascended into heaven, raised from the grave with, with all power. What proof do you need that I am he who will deliver you from death and will deliver you from judgment and give to you a life that shall never end? Oh, selfies, come to me. given the word of God that the life of God might be in the souls of men. Luke presents us to presents him to us as the prophet, but also the priest. And Jesus is both prophet and priest. And we gather that from chapters 7 to 9 and many other places scattered throughout, but as you let your eyes skim through chapters 7 and 9, we see in chapter 6 as well, we see Jesus healing the broken, cleansing lepers, forgiving sins. Maybe a good summary would be in chapter 6, verses 17 to 19. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him. For power came out from him and healed them all. In the Old Testament worship of Israel, people who were unclean had to go to the priest who worked in the temple and to offer some sacrifice. And the priest had to inspect them as to whether or not they were clean. If they weren't clean, they had to go outside the camp and outside the city and live there for a certain amount of days until whatever was unclean about them had been clean. And then they had to go to the priest again and be certified they were okay. It's kind of like a quarantine system. The priest had no power to make people clean, only to pronounce whether they were or not. But people come to Jesus, and they are cleansed, and they are healed, and they are forgiven. For he is the great high priest, the real priest, who makes us whole, who makes us new. You know what I love about Luke's gospel? Jesus most often does this with the people that society has forgotten. He has strong words for the religious leaders and the rich, for the powerful. He's not a God who has to Forgive the phrase, who has to kind of cozy up or suck up to the, to the, to the rich and the famous. No, he, 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 he leaves them. He, he preaches to them and says, unless you repent, you perish. But, but he goes in great tenderness and he sits in the house of lepers. He eats with thieves and tax collectors. Prostitutes come close to him and he teaches them at his feet. I love that in Luke's gospel, we're going to see a savior who goes to the broken and makes them beautiful. And can I tell you one other thing? This is, why my, this is one of my favorite Gospels. It's probably my favorite Gospel. Luke shows us that Jesus loves women. It's a remarkable thing. You read through Luke's Gospel, Luke has this rhetorical device. He often takes a woman of some questionable repute and he puts her in the context of, of men professing to be holy. And they want to do things like take up rocks and stone her for her sin, never asking where was the guy who was sinning with her. Right? And Jesus will scribble in the dirt and say a word like he who has no sin. Let you be the one to throw the first stone. And he'll keep looking in the dirt long enough for everybody to realize they got sin. 
and they walk off. He looks at this woman and he says, go and sin no more. Your sins are forgiven. Or he takes a woman who comes into, into the house where Jesus is and, and she's got this expensive oil. It's all she's got, we're led to believe from the text. And she takes this oil, she breaks the jar, and she anoints him, and she washes his feet with her tears. And sitting there at this, this Pharisee's house, the Pharisee and his friends are looking at Jesus, and they are thinking in their hearts. They don't say it, they're thinking. If he knew what kind of woman she was, he wouldn't let her touch him. And Jesus, knowing their hearts, says, um, look here. He said, just like that, look here. This woman washing my feet? She hadn't stopped crying and washing my feet since I've come here. And you've given me no water to wash my feet. You've not shown me the common hospitality that would be true of every house. And so the Pharisee is exposed in his self-righteous and his judgmentalism about the woman. The woman is honored and loved and cared for. Luke chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, it's women who are trustees in his ministry, who, who support his ministry and fund it. This is our great high priest. He does not skip over the people that society likes to skip over. He stops and he loves them. Luke is going to show us that he's not only prophet and priest, but finally as we close, it's going to show us that he's king. He's king of kings and lord of lords. And to see that, look with me in Luke chapter 19, verses 41 to 44. There's an argument there where the, the religious leaders try to trick him into saying something wrong, teaching something wrong. They keep coming with their little questions. And verse 41 to 44, Jesus does the mic drop right here. Right here is his last thing in Jerusalem, in, um, before he goes into Jerusalem. Verse 41 when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known in this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. Y'all know what? That's not what I'm looking for. It's a good passage of scripture. Ah, I'm sorry. Chapter 20, verses 41 to 44. They come to him trying to trick him with a question about the resurrection. But he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? Quoting from the Psalms now. For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? You just see the intricacy and the beauty of the scriptures right there in the Psalms, hundreds of years before the time of Christ. It's King David writing this song, this, this hymn. And in it, he is reflecting on the, quote, son of David, which is a title for the Messiah when he comes. And Jesus reaches in and takes this verse and says, now listen, David, the king of Israel, he has this thing in one of his songs where he says, the Lord God said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. Now, we all know that that's a reference to the Messiah, the Christ. How is it that David says of his son, he's my Lord who sits at the right hand of God? 
Jesus is beginning to make clear what had been hidden for centuries, that the Son of Man would also be the Son of God, that the Son of David would be none other than the King of Kings himself, the second person of the Trinity who would come into the world not only as a sacrifice, but would come into the world as a servant king. And we're going to get to know something about his kingship as we travel through this gospel. But Luke holds out for us certainty that Jesus is the prophet, the priest, and king who redeems sinners from their sin who believe in him. I pray that we, as we travel through this gospel, we travel to Jesus, the main point of the gospel. We may get to know him better and love him more than ever we have before. And if you're not yet a Christian, you can begin now by repenting of your sins and trusting in this Jesus. He will not forsake you. He will save you. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord God, we give you praise and thanks for Luke and Paul and for all the early Christians you used to write down the sacred truth of your life and your mission. We thank you for making them eyewitnesses to your glory. We thank you for calling them to become fishers of men. And we thank you, O Lord, that this gospel has been relayed from, from the time of your resurrection all the way to our present time. That it was heard not only as you preached it 2,000 years ago, but we hear it even this day. That same good news that there's a Father in heaven of whom we may be certain, who loves sinners, and proved it by your cross. And of his love we may be certain. And who raised you from the grave. Who raised Christ from the grave. To prove that he had conquered death. And to bring life. And because you rose from the grave. We may be certain. That we will too. Who trust in you. Make us more certain this week we pray. And give us a greater glimpse of your glory this week we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.